Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, Cynical listeners. There are only five business days left before our next China conference in New York City. It's going to be a tremendous event. We have David Ho, one of the scientists who has been instrumental in the fight against HIV-AIDS, who's going to talk about how ethnically Chinese scientists have been profiled and targeted here in the U.S. We've got the playwright David Henry Huang talking about his play Soft Power and all sorts of terrific panels, including one focused on the U.S.-China relationship and another on the technology of government in China. We also have Jeremy Goldcorn and I recording a live Seneca podcast featuring the amazing particle physicist and essayist Yang Yang Cheng. Don't miss it. Go to events.subchina.com to learn more and get your tickets. Use the promo code Seneca, S-I-N-I-C-A, for $100 off on the price of your ticket. See you there. Come say hello. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Washington, D.C., where I'm at the home of my dear friend Jim Millward, professor of history at Georgetown, who joins me as host today as Jeremy is traveling. Hey, Jim. Hey, Kaiser. Glad to have you darkening my door again, getting ready to give you a key. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I don't know how many nights I've spent now in your in your uh, basement crouched over. We're renaming it the Guo Suite. No, okay, no. thank you, thank you, excellent. Anyway, um, you know, Chinese人有一句话说，食在中国，味在四川. China is the place for food, and Sichuan is the place for flavor. I would certainly agree with that. Yeah, I would. Yeah, yeah, I would. absolutely. The cuisine of that land of four rivers, that fabled land, that gastronomic paradise in China's southwest, uh, has become wildly popular not only in China but around the world. Uh, I can say with some confidence that at least here in North America, it overtook Cantonese food quite some time ago to become the most popular regional Chinese cuisine. I think it's pretty pretty obvious. Uh, one of the world's greatest popularizers of Sichuan cookery, who not only brought authentic Sichuan food to her native England, but also inspired and empowered a whole generation of would-be Sichuan chefs like me in the West to recreate the food that they love so much in their own kitchens. And that, of course, is fuchsia 
Dunlop. Uh, Fuchsia was the first Westerner to graduate from the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine and has since gone on to win four James Beard Awards, open restaurants, appear in some of my very, very favorite food shows, including Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Fuchsia has written a number of books, including Revolutionary Chinese Cookbook, Recipes from Hunan Province, Every Grain of Rice, Simple Chinese Home Cooking, and Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper, a sweet, sour memoir of eating in China. We had the pleasure of, of having Fuchsia on the show three years ago to talk about her book on Huayang Cuisine, Land of Fish and Rice, which we totally recommend. And today we are thrilled to have her back and in person to talk about her latest, The Food of Sichuan, which is a completely revised and updated version of her classic Land of Plenty, a treasury of authentic Sichuan cooking. Fuchsia, we are so thrilled to have you today uh, with us here on Seneca, and congrats on the new book, which I have been using constantly uh, since I got galley some months back. That's great to hear, and thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so much fun. I, I just can't believe it's changed my life. It's actually <laughs> made my, my whole family very happy, you know, because uh, I've taken over so many of the, of the, the cooking duties. Um, after writing books, though, on, on other regional Chinese cuisines, you have come back to your origins, as it were. Uh, clearly, there is a special place in your heart for Sichuan. I have to think it's not just because it's your first love. Um, you're far from the only person for whom this is a, you know, clear favorite regional cuisine, but could you tell us about your particular affection, your ardor for Sichuan cooking? Well, it's all tied up with the most magical and marvellous year of my life, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to live in the Sichuanese capital, Chengdu, in 1994 as a British Council scholar and um, was one of a sort of ragtag bunch of foreigners from all over the world. And um, we all fell in love with this open and hilarious and lazy and pleasure-loving city (laughs) and its people. You know, Chengdu has a reputation for being a city where people love just sitting around in tea houses, playing mahjong. Having their uh, ears cleaned. (laughs) Eating delicious food. And it's true. Yeah. And so while I was there, um, you know, making friends, getting used to Chinese life, I was just surrounded by all this glorious food. And one of the things about Sichuanese cuisine is that it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. Some of the best Sichuanese food is like country cooking and street food. So even as a student in the university, I was kind of eating like an emperor in Sichuanese terms. Oh, wow. And you never got tired of just that Sichuanese food. I mean, I I can't imagine. I, I remember I was at a... I was talking to a friend of mine some years ago. Um, he'd come to China to visit me, and all he wanted to do was eat Sichuanese food. And I said, you can't eat Sichuanese food every day. We're in Beijing, for all. We're in Hangzhou. We're in Shanghai. We're traveling. And he said, no, I pretty much would like to eat. I said, that's like going to the U.S. and wanting Cajun food every day. <laughs> I thought, but... Well, I don't, you see, I disagree. I think Sichuanese food is definitely one of the world's least boring cuisines. Exactly. I came around. I definitely came around. Yeah, but the important thing is that it's not all hot and spicy. And if it was, then eating it all the time would pull, you know, you'd get tired of it. But the the thing about Sichuanese cuisine is the variety of tastes. And they say, each dish has its own style. A hundred dishes have a hundred different flavors. So, you know, in Sichuan, if you want, you can go and have a seething mala hot pot, or you can go and have some very light stir fried vegetables and broths and so on. So it doesn't all have to sort of blow your head off with (laughs) chilies and Sichuan pepper. Well, the, f- the first dish that I tried in the book was recommended to me by a colleague who called me up and he said, there's this great Chinese cookery book, um, you know, and the dandan mian is absolutely didao. It's absolutely, and that's not a super hot dish generally either, right? As no. you were saying. Um, and I'm like, really? And this became kind of our test dish 
um, and you know, it's never possible to get a satisfactory dandan mian even in restaurants around around here. Often, anyway, I, I tried that, um, and I noticed that in the new book, um, you have that original recipe, but you've actually added. Uh, well, you have a beef version and you have a dandan mian, but then you've added a new. Uh, I think it was Chongqing Xiaomian in that sort of dandan section. I wonder if you could talk about that, and then maybe um, what else is new in this in this book? Because you've done a lot of updating and adding to it. I've noticed. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the reasons for updating the book was to reflect the fact not only that I now have fifteen or twenty years more experience of Sichuanese cuisine, but the cuisine itself has evolved, hmm. and the Chongqing so-called small noodles Xiaomian have just become wildly popular in Sichuan, and you can't move for such uh, for Chongqing noodle joints. And so I wanted to include recipes like that. So the Chongqing noodles, you can have them dry or soupy. They're often topped with minced pork and or sort of slow cooked yellow peas. And it's another sort of delicious, hearty street food, casual lunch dish. Um, so apart from that, um, there are quite a few new noodle dishes in the book, including um, one that I particularly adore, which is Tian Shui Mian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, famous Chengdu street snack. And this unusually because, you know, in northern China, people tend to hand make noodles all the time. But in Sichuan, people normally buy them from specialists. But this one dish is always made fresh by noodle shops. It's and It's um, like a rope of, of, of noodles. Yeah, yeah, so it's a thick sort of sheet of noodle dough that's rolled out and kind of cut cut into strips and then pulled a little bit and mm-hmm, flung mm-hmm. into boiling water. And then it's dressed in that amazing Sichuanese combination of sort of sweet soy sauce and chili and so it's on. a little sesame, sesame paste in that? Is yeah, that, uh, there are different versions of it. but um, And it has that wonderful kogan, you know, a bit springy and a bit chewy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there are 70 new recipes in the book. And 17? 70. Seven oh, zero. 70. Wow. And I retested all the old recipes and almost in almost every case, I fine-tuned them and refined them and in some cases completely replaced them. And then there's also one section that I really like. There's just a couple of pages, but it's a whole lot of delicious little relishes and dips and sauces. Uh, which you I, I can, have been, yeah. Yeah, like the food of Jiang Yo, and I, 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 that's what I hit first. Basically, I decided, you know what, I need to have all these things sort of on on hand. So I, I made myself a gigantic bottle of Hong Yo, just using you know the the, the recipe. You, you had two recipes for Hong Yo in there. Uh, there was a second one in there where you tip in a, 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 some cool oil. That's the one that I did. Um, I can't remember the name of the gentleman who. Oh, it's so from a famous chef, Lan Guijun, okay. a famous Chengdu chef, who told me his new method for making Hong Yu. It was fabulous. It, it's worked really, really well. And um, my house smelled wonderful for days after. It was just, uh, just a fantastic thing. Uh, back in, in 2016, in November 2016, when we talked to you, we got a little bit about your origin story. But one question that I failed to ask you was. You had been backpacking around China for a month, I remember, uh, after you had been working, I think, as a sub-editor at some publishing house, and you were interested in China. That presumably is the first time you encountered Sichuan cuisine. Uh, what do you remember about your first sensations of it? What, I mean, of, of something that was very typically Sichuan. Well, funnily enough, my first encounter with Sichuanese cuisine was really bad. <laughs> oh, no. So I, I arrived in Chongqing and I remember I was really tired and bedraggled after a long day on the road or the plane or whatever. And I read in my Lonely Planet guidebook that there was this thing called hot pot. 
And so I went to Hot Pot Street and um, really didn't know what this was at all. And I ended up, well, you know what uh, Chongqing Hot Pot is like, an absolutely fiery hot broth full of oil and chilies and Sichuan pepper and all these unrecognizable, unidentifiable rubbery things to cook in it. And I just remember um, finding it overpoweringly hot, not knowing what half the ingredients were. And for the rest of my time in Chongqing, I actually wrote in my diary, every dish was seasoned with handfuls of this, I can't remember how I described this, appalling spice that made my mouth numb. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Yeah, but a lot of people just don't have a good reaction to it. Your daughters hate it, right, Jim? They, well, when I cook with it, yeah. Oh, okay. I, it might be different if you were cooking, but it, it is a acquired taste. It's weird at first. Well, I think that was the thing that I didn't know what it was and no one explained it to me. So it's quite alarming. But then the following year, I went to Chengdu and the food of Chengdu is softer and more mellifluous and Mm -hmm. more seductive anyway. It's less sort of in your face than Chongqing food. Um, And I was lucky to be taken around by a local musician and his wife. And that's when I really fell in love with it. And I was just amazed by these just complex and delicious and varied flavors and yeah. all these ingredients. And that's what decided me to go back and live in Chengdu. Oh, okay. Okay. So there are, if I'm not mistaken, eight different regional cuisines in China. The, the, or, 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 that's how I've heard it described to me, at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is fairly recent categorization, yeah, really. I wondered- how, how they that kind of categorization came up and and you know how this was sort of constructed because we think of um, Chinese cuisines in the West they're all named after provinces right and Calvin Trillin had a famous joke about that once in the New they, Yorker have, have they, they, they run out of provinces yet right you know, if they right. haven't there's reason to fret at first there was just Cantonese but back then we were easy to please or something like that right right, right. so um, but that's not exactly how they're kind of understood. Is that how they're understood in China? And I sort of wonder what you think about that categorization. Well, people talk a lot about either four great cuisines mm-hmm. or eight great cuisines, as if it was something set in stone. But um, I read a very interesting article by a Chinese journalist who'd really looked into this. And these categorizations only really took root, I think, about in the 80s, but certainly in the second half of the 20th century. Before that, early 20th century, people sometimes talked about bang, you know, like a clique or a gang, mm-hmm. so of different regions. But these eight great cuisines reflect a certain sort of understanding of Chinese gastronomy. So, for example, hui cai and hui cooking is one of them. And it's very curious that you would have an hui and that you would not have, for example, shanxi, yeah. like xian mm. food is now more popular. So I think um, China is such a huge country and so diverse in culinary terms that however you carve it up is somewhat arbitrary. Yeah. Do they map onto dialects at all? Um, to a certain extent, they do, except that minzai um, fujian cooking is considered separately to yuecai Whereas that you know there's some overlap like the Chaozhou region, right, right, you know, right. linguistic and so on, and um, yeah, so and then there are whole areas that are omitted like Dongbei. Well, maybe rightly <laughs> from from the the big categorization, but yes, of course everyone talks about Dongbei Thai all the time yeah, in the Dongbei Yunnan, restaurants. Yunnan, and Yunnan, of course, you're right. Oh yeah, and Yunnan is you know fantastic in right. making this. I mean, it's it's surging in popularity these days. A lot of people now w- would regard that as you know. Why isn't that one of the eight? That is strange. 
Yeah. So I think it's just that, you know, at some moment people decided those were the eight more significant cuisines, but I would treat that with a big pinch of salt. Yeah. Mm. And um, I, I actually find more useful the four great cuisines because I think you can generalize about the north and the use of wheat products and the heavy use of vinegar and garlic and mutton as a meat. Yeah. And then you can generalize about the spicy west, sort of Sichuan, Yunnan, Hunan, these areas with the, the sort of very heavily flavored food. And the sort of um, gentle flavors of the east, the Jiangnan region, with a bit of sweetness from Suzhou, Muxi, and all these water plants, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. both creatures and plants, you mm-hmm. know, water shield and freshwater shrimps and eels and so on. And then Cantonese with all these light flavors and seafood. So for me, that's more useful if I'm going to make a sort of broad brushstrokes picture of Chinese regional mm-hmm. cuisines. That makes sense to me too. And- so where does Sichuan food kind of fit in that understanding? And, and, and obviously it's had this great rise in popularity. Uh, when did that start in, in China? Well, um, so Sichuanese scholars love to pounce on this um, couple of lines from a 4th century text by historian Chang Ju in the Huayang Guozhi, mm-hmm. um, in which it says that the people of the Sichuan region um, so a partial to flavors and like pungent and fragrant tastes. So people always say, oh, look, you know, long before the chili, the Sichuanese people like to season their food boldly. And certainly in Chinese, in terms of traditional Chinese medicine, um, because of the muggy climate, you do have to doctor your diet and you have to eat sort of heaty drying foods to drive out this dampness. So it may be that people in this region were used to um, eating these strong spices. But before the chili, it would have been ginger, mm-hmm. um, Sichuan pepper, and, and its other wild varieties, which are some of them no longer used, um, and also pepper, barbarian pepper, hujiao, which was a later import. Interestingly, in Song Dynasty Kaifeng, the northern Song capital, there were restaurants specializing in Chuan, Sichuan flavor oh, really? food. So although we don't really know what that meant, it suggests there was something distinctive about the flavors of the region. And some people think that maybe Sichuan was just famous for certain ingredients. You know, there are references to Sichuan ginger from more than 2000 years ago. Um, But in terms of what we now understand to be Sichuanese cuisine, it's much more recent. So the chili, although it came earlier to the coastal provinces of China, I think it was first documented, I think the late 16th century, but as an ornamental plant at first. Ah, People ah, thought how pretty the flowers and the scarlet fruit. And um, it was only later, so late 18th, early 19th century, that that Sichuanese sources showed that it had become established as a local crop. So it's 200 years, really, um, of the chili and Sichuanese cuisine. And interestingly, one of the main sources, I mean, there aren't very many textual sources about Sichuanese cuisine, but one of the earliest is a, a Chengdu Tonglan, a guide to Chengdu, mm-hmm. published by, um, written by Fu Chongyu and published in, I think, 1908. And it's an amazing sort of gazetteer, a sort of lists and lists of many local customs and features of the city, including restaurants and dishes and street snacks. But um, it's quite noticeable that um, there aren't that many that are 
still exist in exactly the same form or with the same name. And there are a few mala dishes mm-hmm. and ladza dishes uh-huh. with chili or, or chili and such and pepper. But there are also lots of very mild dishes and even some Western dishes. You know, there were missionaries in Chengdu early 20th oh. century. And so you do see, you know, mapu dofu is listed there. And um ji chicken with chilies, although not, I think, the Chongqing version. Not the gulash and Lazaji, right? Yes, not that one, I think. Um, but... Um, but yeah, the, the the chili, you know, has been at that point clearly was part of Sichuanese cuisine, but not the whole thing. It, it grows particularly well there, right? I mean, it, it seems to. It doesn't like uh, direct sunlight. It likes that sort of hazy indirect sunlight and quite a bit of heat and humidity, right? Mm, well, I mean, and it's been, you know, of course, the chili has grown very widely in several inland provinces. So Guizhou, Hunan and Sichuan and to a certain extent also Yunnan. Right. And they do use the chili in the northern provinces like Shanxi and so on, but sparingly and more as a condiment than mm-hmm. as a sort of dominant flavor in dishes. So I mean, while we're on the subject of climate, I mean, what is it about the geography, the climate, the, the sort of the meteorology of that area, the soil conditions that make it so fertile, that make it so, uh, and there's such a variety of foods there. Yeah, well, it's been known since ancient times as Tian Fu Zhuguo, Land of Plenty, which was the original title of the book. And it has a very favorable climate with plenty of rain and very fertile soil. And also there's the famous Dujiangyan Irrigation Project. Right, that's like more than 2,000 years old. Yes, so uh, more than 2,000 years ago, this um, engineer Li Bing harnessed the rivers and sort of controlled them, which sort of made the land fruitful and sort of um, took away a lot of the risk of flooding. And so ever since then, Sichuan has been a sort of rice basket of China. And in the sort of late Ming, early Qing, the population of Sichuan had been decimated by war and, you know, you know, unrest and pestilence and so on. And so in the early Qing, the government, um, the Qing government um, had a policy of encouraging mass migration to mm-hmm. Chengdu to bring all this land back into use. So that was the Huguang Tian, Tian Sichuan. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. people from many provinces, including Hubei, Hunan, Guang, um, Guangdong, um, and a bit from the northwest. So fill all in, these right. people. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's one of the reasons that people always um, say for, for Sichuan's open-mindedness and this very welcoming atmosphere because, um, you know, most people are aware that they're descended from outsiders. <laughs> There was that that uh, Ming rebel named I think his name was Zhang Xianzhong or something like that yeah. who killed just millions of people in Sichuan. I mean, he was one of the most horrible butchers of of history, right? Yeah, that's fascinating. And and how did it go global? When when did it go global? When when did it become that? Every Chinese restaurant where I live basically is a Chinese restaurant in North Carolina. Yeah, well, I, I think that um, the real difference was uh, following the opening up of China in the 1990s, um, many Chinese people, particularly young Chinese people, started coming abroad to study, to work, to live. And in that period in China, Sichuanese food was becoming the hippest and most popular cuisine. Um, so young people all over the place wanted to eat Sichuan food. There were some Sichuanese restaurants that were opening branches all over the country. 
And so what you had was a new generation of Chinese immigrants who were not like the established sort of Cantonese, American Chinese. Um, and they didn't want to eat the same sort of food. They wanted to eat the food they liked at home. And so what you've got is in areas with particularly with a lot of Chinese students, um, a lot of little restaurants started opening to cater for their tastes. Mm. So not to pander to Western tastes, but right. this was Chinese food on, on contemporary Chinese terms. And then, of course, um, you know, Sichuanese food is very exciting and delicious. And so people who are not Chinese then started discovering it. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, while we're on this subject of parsing the various cuisines um, of China and Sichuan cuisine and so on, there are differences you just alluded to in, within Sichuan itself, right, between Chengdu and Chongqing. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to remember that Sichuan is a is a um, province that is the size of a decent European country. Mm. Um, when I was a student, Chongqing was officially part of it. It's now been carved off into a separate municipality. But I think in culinary terms, it's still part of Sichuanese cuisine. Um, but, you know, Chongqing, the food is famously more spicy. The climate is more insufferably hot and sultry in the summer. It's one of China's so-called Hulu furnace mm, cities. The five furnaces, yeah. Yes. And so people feel that they have to eat lots of incredibly hot chilies and Sichuan pepper to drive out the Because they're not sweating enough already. <laughs> yeah. And also Chongqing is a brisker place. It's right. um, hilly and hardworking. And it was a river port, a busy port. Um, with a very dynamic culinary culture. And Chongqing these days is known for its Jianghu Cai, mm-hmm. um, river and lake dishes, which is sort of hearty roadside food. And there you get enormous um, dishes, the size of satellite dishes, you know, piled up with ch- fresh or, I mean, with chilies fresh or pickled or, or dried with little morsels of food in between. Very hearty style of food. Um, and then the food of Chengdu is um, a bit more refined and delicate. I would say there's more of that sweetness coming in, like the fish fragrant flavor, mm. Xiang Wei. And um, yeah, and, and also... Um, I think the food of Chengdu, that's where you get the more elegant banquet cooking, um, you know, for the last right. hundred years or so. But then there are other fascinating regional differences, like in Chunnan, the south of Sichuan. Uh-huh. Um, they have, they use a lot of pickled chilies and pickled ginger together in a lot of cooking. Mm. They're very keen on the xiao chao, small stir fry, yeah, yeah. hot wok, hot oil. Bang, 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 quick, 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 stir frying things like, you know, pork offal and so on. And interestingly, also in the south of Sichuan, in areas bordering Guizhou, then you also get the use of tsiba la jiao, which means sticky rice cake oh, chilies. Right, 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 right. And that's where you soak dried chilies and then you pound them in a mortar with a bit of chili and garlic usually. And that's the base for your sauces and dips. Okay. And, and they also use, you know, do you know, litsia oil? That's um, mu jiang yo. Mu jiang yo, yeah. yeah, which is an extremely strong lemony oil. Right, right, right. And they also use fresh herbs like Korean mint and spearmint. So there are these very interesting sort of regional flavors that you don't really find in Chengdu. Yeah, that's one of the Guizhou thing, right? The mu jiang yo. You, you yes. have it with, yeah, with, with, uh, with suan tang yu, right? That's, uh, that's typically served with that. But that you is know, you're right next to Guizhou acquired. in some of these mm. you know, yeah, parts right, of right, Sichuan. Exactly, so. exactly. Yeah, so you know, we were talking about what Sichuan food might have been like before the Columbian Exchange. I just I just found this little quote here. Um, there's some 
uh, a writer named E.N. Anderson who wrote a, oh, a, a book called yeah, The Food of China. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that, yes, yeah, Sichuanese cooking, he's talking about in the 11th century, um, was set apart by its spiciness and, and use of mountain products and herbs and was also quite distinctive. And that was, uh, yeah, all the way back in the 11th century. It's remarkable. Well, speaking of all these different flavors and herbs and things that are available um, or, or that go into Sichuan cooking, there's a great section in your book about the Sichuan larder and the basic ingredients that one should have stocked in there. Um, and I try and keep some of those things in my cupboard here. Uh, I don't don't quite do it. But um, besides the obvious things, so green onions and ginger and garlic and you know, dark and light soy and the hot oils we've been talking about and so on, um, what other things should we have on hand as basics? Just you know, next time we're at the Asian market, should we make sure to get? Well, um, obviously, dried chilies and Sichuan pepper. Mm-hmm. And for Sichuanese cooking, you don't want to get really, really hot dried bird's eye chilies, the kind that you might find in some Indian and Thai dishes, because right. they'll be too hot. Because in Sichuanese food, you often add them with a generous hand, mm-hmm. and they're meant to be aromatic rather than you know, really fierce often. So the slightly longer one to two inch dried Yes, or the plump ones. Or or the rounder. Yes. So there are different varieties, but I would always go for ones with a sort of nice luster blood red color and a bit larger and less hot. Uh, And you can often make a guess that they're intended for Sichuanese cuisine because they're sold in such big bags. Actually, I've bought those five pound bags. Yes, for making lots of tea and things. And then Sichuan pepper. And this is a little bit tricky because um, many Chinese stores sell Sichuan pepper that's really imported by Cantonese people for Cantonese tastes. And it's not ma. It doesn't have the tingly numbing taste Mm -hmm. um, that you want with good Sichuan, Sichuan pepper. Um, So there is an online company called the Mala market. Um, And I know that they are doing their best to source different varieties of really good Sichuan pepper. So I would try and get, you know, um, Sichuan pepper from a specialist supplier who is looking to make you know, to encourage you to make Sichuanese dishes because it'll only then have that zing. The real zing. <laughs> the weapons zing. grade stuff. <laughs> there was a long period of time in the U.S., I don't know about in, in Europe, when um, Sichuan peppercorns could not be imported. Right. Right. right? This that fear, was, fear that um, they had some citrus canker or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there was a theoretical risk. I think there was some controversy, but that it could spread citrus canker because it's related to citrus, to the American citrus crop. So now I I think you, you can um, import it when it's been heat treated, but it is available now. We didn't have that restriction in England. Right, you're lucky. So does the heat treating affect the flavors? or, or I, mean, do you I have haven't any sense? done, no, but I mean, I have had very zingy Sichuan pepper and Sichuanese dishes here, so I would assume that you can get. Yeah, you can get, you can get really good stuff. Now you can even get some of the green now. That yes, they have, right? but you talked about in your book a, a special sort of royal type of of uh, that was like especially for for um, to be it's, it's like a tribute grade uh, tribute grade Sichuan pepper. T- tell us about that, and, and are you able to get that through Mala Market? Well, um, so the finest Sichuan pepper is said to come from Hanyuan County in the mountains west of Chengdu. Okay. And in Hanyuan County, there's a particular little town called Qingxi. Uh-huh. And that is where the best pepper comes from. And if you're a serious aficionado, you want the pepper from the Ox Market Slopes. Just that's like Qingxi, I'll remember that. So Niushapur. Oh, And... Um, I'll, I'll ask at the Great Wall supermarket in <laughs> in Rockville next time I'm there. 
But so I think, I mean, I would guess that one real constraint now is that Sichuanese food is so popular and so many people want the good right. stuff that I would imagine it's very hard to get your hands on the real Nyoshapur pepper because it's not a very large area. Um, but having said that, there are now companies in Chengdu, in Sichuan, who are trying to... Um, you know, market and sell kind of boutique Sichuan peppers with the idea that like wine grapes, they're an expression of their terroir. So they're labeled with different, um, you know, different regions of origin. And it doesn't have to be from Hanyuan. There are other areas of Sichuan where you can get really zingy Sichuan pepper. But uh, I have no doubt that this will be a growing market. It's can, I just, can I just take like... the opportunity here um, to, to tell all my Chinese colleagues who are going to come visit me in my office and who <laughs> up to now bring me tea. I love the tea. Um, but I have a lot of it, and I can't get through it. So please, from now on, bring me Sichuan pepper. Yes, <laughs> that would be so a great very, innovation. It's really light. I mean, it's 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 easy to bring. And Jim, I have to say, one other key seasoning that we should mention is the Pixian Douban. Yeah, so that is one of the real core cool seasonings of the Sichuan kitchen. Um, so it's Sichuan chili bean paste, and it's made with fermented chilies, a local variety called Arjingtiao, which are long and fruity and not too hot. And they're fermented with fava beans, broad mm. beans, um, for two, three years. And um, you get this deep chestnut-colored paste, um, which is the base seasoning for mapo tofu, um, for twice-cooked pork, all kinds of wonderful stews. And so that is a really important part of Sichuanese Kitchen. There are commercial brands of that that, you know, I've, I've bought it. Um, you don't want I, to buy the commercials. I mean, but I sometimes like, find, yeah, I don't, I, it's not quite there. And I don't no. know, I mean, do you have a recipe to make it or? Uh, you, you just buy the Pixian stuff. Anything that says Pixian on it, it's actually from that particular county. And you want the stuff with the chunks in it generally, I find. Yes, you can. Often it's very chunky and you need to actually chop it or, right. you know, pulverize it in a blender before cooking with it. Hmm. But um, yeah, there are some like Lee Kum Ki, the Hong Kong company, do a commercial version of Doban Jiang and they do another one which is called... Um, I can't remember, the name is slightly different. Now, these are perfectly workable Sichuan chili bean paste. And when I published the first edition of, of my book, that was the only one, that, that those were the only ones that you could find abroad. So if they're what you want, you can still make delicious Sichuanese food. But if you want to take it up a level, mm. then you want to get the real PCN, as you say, Kaiser, chili bean paste. And that is darker in color. It's right. thicker. And um, the only ingredients it should have in it are chilies, salt, fava beans, wheat flour, and that's pretty much it. So the com more commercial version, sometimes they have a bit of garlic and spices or soybeans. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it blends into sort of basic red chili sauce or something. Sometimes. Yes, yeah, 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 you don't want that. It's not yeah. distinctive. Yeah. So and I, and again, I think that um, you know, in the last ten years in Britain, we can now get real Sichuan chili bean paste because there are so many Sichuan restaurants that mm. want to use it, and I'm sure it's the same for you so, here. So Pishen. Uh, do, uh, do ban jiang is the ger generic um, word. I also see do ban la jiang. Is that something else? Yeah, that's different. That's it's, different. It's either do ban jiang or pixian do ban. Pixian do ban. Do bar, as we always say. Do bar. It's interesting that each these different counties now in Sichuan are, are famous for producing certain things. Like, you know, if you want to get jia uh, cai, it has to be from Fuling. And if you, you want to get. Uh, Ya cai, yi bin is like the the right the right ya cai to get, or the ya cai. 
But this is one, one point that's really interesting, and I always want to stress this, that um, a lot of people would think that an obsession with provenance and terroir is a European or modern Californian sort of invention. And the Chinese have been obsessed with specifically where and when their produce comes from <laughs> for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> so true. Absolutely true. Um, one of the first things that I did, just you know, by the larger thing is, like I said, I I, I made a bunch of the uh, uh, hai mi, and your your recipe for that is just terrific. Um, I think I had been, you know, just using the 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 Korean stuff, you know, the sort of coarse ground, or once in a while you could buy some of it, but it was, I guess, they didn't toast it first before it's ground. It, it doesn't have that insane fragrance that, that that you when you when you actually make it yourself so then i took that and i made my hongyo out of out of that and i just have a lot of this around um making those flavored jangyos like the, the fuja jangyo uh what are some of the other things but just just having all these things prepped and, and waiting for me in little jars so i can quickly cook with them i mean it, it's ended up saving me a ton of time there've got to be other hacks that you know of that you might uh, be able to share with us like I remember I was listening to a cooking show on NPR one day and somebody said, you know, uh, make a big batch of mirepoix, you know, this sort of onions, celery and carrots or you know, there's different versions of it and make a batch of that and freeze it in little Ziploc bags. And it's really, you know, useful for cooking. It saves you tons of time. You don't have to, you know, do a mirepoix before you begin making your bolognese or before you do these other things. Do you have hacks like that? Things that you do to, to help you save time? Um, well, one of them is just making stock in large quantities and freezing mm-hmm. it. And if I make um, food that involves lu shui, like a spiced broth, right. like cooking, you know, offal or beef in a spiced broth, I will strain it and freeze it. Oh, that's And good then idea. you can use it next time, maybe add a little more salt. Um, I think exactly what you've said, making your own chili oil, which is much better than, and much more suitable for Sichuanese cooking than the often very hot chili oils that bizarrely right. the Cantonese have, even though they don't like spicy food as much. Um, so those, but but one thing I would say just definitely don't do is toast and grind lots of Sichuan pepper in advance right. because that really loses its flavor very quickly. So I never keep that for longer than a week or maximum two weeks. It's best, best done really fresh. He's got something there. He was I made too much the other day, but I'm putting out on absolutely everything to get rid of it quickly. So, uh, I always thought also that using a mortar and pestle to grind it, it, it tastes better than just using a coffee mill or something like that. I, 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 maybe I'm just Do you have an opinion about, about that? Well, I mean, I would suggest that, I mean, when you've toasted it, let it cool a bit. Right. Because I think when you, when you whiz it in a, in a grinder when it's hot, then somehow the outside of the berry tends to stick to the mm. you know, outside. But um, I haven't done a scientific comparison. I've hand, <laughs> hand-pounded. <laughs> well, I, I do use a, a dedicated coffee grinder, which actually my wife uses for the Indian masalas, which you also you know, dry roast first and then grind up like to make garam masala or something. Mm-hmm. So the, it's kind of got an interesting um, uh, you know, it's a, a series of vestigial flavors that kind of come in with the Sichuan peppercorn. I, it's probably not recommended, but it, 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 it creates an interesting mix. But have you tried um, grinding coffee beans in your Sichuan pepper grinder? No, do I have a separate one for, for, for that? a nice that idea. Would, that might be good. good. Idea. Might be a bit know. like those um, Arab, you know, yeah. cardamom coffee. I was, I was actually surprised to see some of the spices that ended up in like the Fuzhou Jiangyu. Like, I didn't know that Chinese ever used cardamom for anything. 
Yes. And uh, I was really surprised. I was like, no, no, this I've, I've tasted this before. I hadn't ever known. That. Well, they use several different varieties of cardamom. Right, so the, the Chinese black one. cardamom, Taoguo, the big ones, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. some other varieties too. You know, we were asked, talking earlier about, about cumin, and I know it's not specifically Sichuan, but um, uh, I, I've noticed in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years that sort of cumin dishes have taken off in China, ziran, yangrou. Too much. Yes. Yeah. And the word ziran, uh, however it's pronounced in Chinese, I may have the tones wrong, that's directly from Uyghur. Um, is it really? Yeah. Um, Wait, and, what is it in Uyghur? Uh, it's something like that, ziran, ziran. Um, what? Apologies to my Uyghur friends for remembering it wrong. But I, I note this because in, in, um, in Hindi, the word is jira. So, which is a version of the same word. So I think it's probably Persian originally. Yes. Um, but in any case, I wondered if you've kind of tracked um, cumin in Chinese cooking and has it gone into Sichuan? And um... Well, I would say that you can almost always buy cumin in any spice shop in Sichuan. And that was the yeah. case also 20 years ago. But I mean, it would have very specific uses and it would not be used in a general lu shui. Um, so when I have had it in Sichuan, and particularly in Hunan, it was an exception. So you would have certain dishes that were flavoured with ziran, but not. It was not. It felt as though it was a slightly different category. And yes, sort of Xinjiang food, particularly, um, and then also just some some dishes where you get sort of hot and fragrant, like sort of ribs and kebabs, which right. are clearly influenced by the Northwest, although they've been absorbed by other regional cuisines. But I would say Ziran, yeah, it, it feels like a sort of um, more of a fringe spice in Sichuan. Mm-hmm. Is this maybe a general way in which Chinese cuisine incorporates outside influences? First as sort of a novelty item in a particular dish, and then gradually as people get used to it and experiment spread around? Do you have insights into that? Or? Well, I'm sure. I mean, Sichuan is such, as people always say, it's very baorong. It's a place that's open-minded and tolerant and inclusive. And the chili is the best example of that. It's still called in Sichuanese hai jiao, which yeah. means sea pepper, mm-hmm. sort of foreign um, thing. It's foreign origins. Um, yeah. But these days, the pace of change is so fast. And there are new dishes and new crazies all the time. And two ingredients which have just appeared suddenly in the last few years are, do you know ice plant? No, what's that? So it's, um, I think it's from Russia, and it's a sort of succulent salad plant. So you get this oh, very yeah, crisp leaves, and it looks as though the leaves are covered in tiny little crystals Dude, of ice. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. It's, yeah. It's like it looks kind of like a seaweed It's or amazing. That, that's, yes, It's eaten tar. raw, and it, it's great. You, and it you know, crunches in your head. It's noisy to delicious. eat. You know, Chinese love those, mm-hmm. Chinese, those mm-hmm. textures. So that's something that has become ubiquitous in the last couple of years. And also okra. Um, which was unheard of, and now every trendy restaurant all over China really increasingly has okra on the menu. Mm, yeah, and um, and then other things like salmon has become you know that was clearly non-native, but right. imported salmon sometimes as sashimi, but also as sort of cutlets and things, and you know steaks. Of course, <laughs> as right. pa- but as part of a Sichuanese meal. Mm. So I think people are just. I mean, in China in general, but perhaps especially in Sichuan, which has a frenetic and competitive restaurant industry, that everyone's looking for the next craze, the next sort of selling point for their restaurant or snack shop. And so it's just constant dynamic. So living as I did in Beijing over the course of 20 years, uh, I was, I mean, I saw a lot of of, of food fads prior to that, but there were 
quite a number that were that seem to have been Sichuanese in origin. Um, some of them, like in the late '90s, suddenly Shuizhuyu became a huge hit. I mean, it was absolutely everywhere. Uh, Feitong Yuxiang was like this restaurant. Then and now you go to places and you order a dish called Feitong Yu, which is like that that Beijing version. But when I go to Sichuan during that time, I didn't find the same dish. I was wondering what was happening. I mean, how are these things being innovated and, and how did they like take root in, in the capital? Now, you know, in the States, I get that Beijing style Feitong Yuxiang uh, fish dish. Another one was um, Ma Xiangguo, which maybe about 10 years ago suddenly hit all over China. I saw it everywhere. That's also here in the States now. But I, I'd never seen it in Sichuan before. Yes. It's, well, Shuizhuyu, I remember in the 90s, um, people used to drive out of town to have lianyu, you know, the giant yeah, yeah, fish, yeah, yeah. Um, but huge basins full of fish in a stew with lots of sizzling oil and chilies. So, so that sort of started out as a country dish, which wow. then caught on. And there are quite a few. Suan Yu as well was supposed to be a Chongqing dish, which then spread to Chengdu when I was there and then nationwide. Oh, that's great too. Um, I love that. Yes. So I think that, and, and it's the same within Sichuan, like recent years, you can't move without bumping into boboji, bobo chicken. What is that? So boboji is like, um, you have on the table a big tub of fragrant spice infused oil. And in it, there, there are a great thicket of skewers and each skewer has a bit of something on the end of it. Okay. You know, vegetable or meat or offal. I've and seen that, you yeah. just take them out and you eat the thing out of the fragrant oil. And this is from Lushan, home of the giant the Buddha. Buddha yeah. um, and it's called Bobo Chicken, although chicken is only one of a whole multitude of ingredients. And that's suddenly everywhere. Yeah, I had that. I wasn't impressed, I have to say. It just didn't strike me as a particularly sophisticated take on it. I mean, the oil was sort of lukewarm and the, the, the vegetables, I mean, it, you didn't get a lot for your money either. It was just this little tiny skewer of... Yeah, little... but it, I think this is street food. And it's very popular with young people. Yeah, so you can just sit around a table in a back alley laughing with your friends for hours and hours and hours and just having the old skewer. And it's not expensive. It's not difficult to do. Um, so there's actually a lot of, you know, the char, the skewers right. and hot pot, this whole genre of quite cheap and easy, spicy food, which is very popular. But I think also that people in cities all over the world um, these days are spoilt for choice with food. You can just have anything you want. And I think that Sichuanese food is so varied and so stimulating and so electrifying that it can hold your attention even in a very, very crowded and competitive marketplace. So that's one reason that, you know, in China... It's very difficult to do subtle Jiangnan cuisine right. well. You need better technique and ingredients. With Sichuanese food, of course, at the highest level, it's very technically skilled, but you can create a great sensation with a load of chilies and skewers and things, <laughs> and people like it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, speaking of some of these different flavors, um, I was thinking about these standard terms for flavors that we just you know, use normally in, in, in Chinese, and they get translated with a, a very plain English word, um, you know, and one of those is, uh, is, is xian, um, and another is, is xiang. And I wondered if in the course of rewriting or you know, re-editing the book or you know, in the course of your career working with food, have you thought about better ways to convey what these flavors mean uh, in the English language or when, you know, talking to, to non-China specialists? Well, 
it's quite interesting because in the first edition of the book, I talked a lot about Xian and described it sort of in meticulous detail. And in the meantime... This new word um, shows up in English. Yeah, umami. Yeah. And I suddenly realized, actually, this is what Chinese people have been talking about all these years. It's just the same thing, umami. And so although I do think it's a shame sometimes that the Japanese words have jumped in before the Chinese word, like tofu. Tofu, it always, <laughs> it always bothers me, yes. Yeah, daikon. I'm not saying umami anymore. I'm going to say shen for now on. Yes, but the fact is that umami has now become established and people know yeah, what it yeah, means. Yeah. And so that's become comparatively easy. And Xiang fragrant in this book, there is a paragraph describing how magical and wonderful and evocative it is in Chinese. And the fact that when people say fragrant, they don't just mean smells nice. They're also referring to what people might call Maillard reaction flavors, when you sort of caramelization, the roasty smoky flavors Mm. you get from direct contact of of heat with the skin of a duck or, um, you know, a vegetable in a wok. (laughs) And um, so... Yes, I think xiang, and also, of course, in Chinese, xiang means incense and has a sort of spiritual connotation about the use of incense and smells in rituals. So I think xiang is a beautiful and magical word. But I, I think one of the problems is that with Chinese, you know, in English, most of our culinary vocabulary is borrowed from French. Right. Chef, mm-hmm. restaurant, menu, sauté, mayonnaise, mm-hmm. everything is borrowed from French. Um, but the nature of the Chinese language makes it more difficult to borrow because um, the, the, the characters are what's really distinctive and too many of the sounds sound the same right. or, or are a little difficult to pronounce for people in the West. So I think that's why, just for example, in terms of cooking terminology, there are two words in in Sichuanese kitchen, which would both be written K-A-O, cow. Mm-hmm. They're different characters, but the, the, the opinion is exactly the same. And you, you can't really communicate that in English very easily, the difference between different characters. I know you have a list of, I believe it's a 56 different cooking methods of Sichuan. And I was skimming through that and um, wondered why, you know, there's this apocryphal saying that the Eskimos have words for snow or whatever, right? But um, one could easily say, you know, the Chinese have 25 words for fry. um, And that would actually be true, or at least 20 of that list are new modes of frying. And also a more discriminating vocabulary of texture. Because I think one of the problems in writing about Chinese food in English is that a lot of the words to describe textures highly prized in Chinese gastronomy sound really disgusting in English. Slimy, gristly, slithery. Exactly. They don't conjure up nice pictures in the minds of most Westerners. And just the word, suddenly I realized I'm kogan. We don't even have that word. Mouthfeel. Yes. Well, that is one example. Is that a translation? Is that a calc from Chinese, do we think? It has to be. Do people say mouthfeel? It has to be. People say it all the time. Yeah. I mean, foodie people. Now we'll say, oh, you know, we talk about mouthfeel. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's coming from Chinese. It it seems... I think it has to. I mean, I was very interested. For the first time last year, I went to Japan and I was very struck by how they also are obsessed with texture and interesting textures. Mm -hmm. And in Japanese, there's a word, I think it's shugan, Mm. and it's like food feeling. So ah. the characters, the kanji is food feeling. Right. But the Chinese is literally mouth feel feeling. Yeah. So I think the word mouth feel Shuk, is just a... Shukan or something like that yeah. would be in Japanese. Huh. So well, we directly borrow it from Chinese, I reckon. Just that word shen we were talking about, I think it's interesting that it's written with the character for fish and the character or the radical for fish, the radical for, for lamb. 
for mutton. And I'm also, I'm, I'm not quite clear when the character Xian acquired that meaning, because of course it also means fresh. And sort right. of certain colours can be described as sort of bright and xian. Yeah. So um, it's not um, some of the older sources. It, you know, of course, it was also meaning small fish. That famous um, quote from Lao Tzu that governing a kingdom is like peng xiao xian, cooking xiao fish. It's the same character. Ah. So I don't know when the distinctive umami aspect of the character came into hmm. the kitchen hmm. vocabulary. Hmm. So uh, getting back to your book, if you were to recommend three or four dishes that the novice could try that are surefire, fairly easy crowd pleasers, the ones that, that you know, you're going to take to that dinner party uh, that you, you've got you know, four friends coming over and you're going to just dazzle them with books from Fuchsia Dunlop's book, uh, from dishes from, from Fuchsia Dunlop's book. What would you recommend? Well, I have no doubt giving first place to fish fragrant eggplant. Oh, my God. That's the, oh, my God. Yeah. I, I you. You've changed my life. I That is fantastic. It's a fantastic recipe. And the thing that's really, that dazzles people now, and I've done that four or five times now for, for guests, is the vibrant purple color. I was never able to do that before. And I think it has something to do with your salt, your salt regime or something like that. But... I love that recipe. That's I highly recommend that one. Yeah, absolutely. And that one too, I took that to a sort of potluck housewarming party the other day. A friend of mine, and he's an excellent cook, doing mainly Italian food. And I took that dish and he was really annoyed with me afterwards because all the guests were just raving and raving <laughs> about the Sichuanese aubergines. <laughs> now, these are done with the, um, the, the nasu, the long yeah, the, the Japanese, Chinese, Chinese well, ideally. Can, or- you can use any kind of um, aubergine eggplant that you like. Um, and actually in London, I normally use Turkish ones because that's what I can get. Um, but the dish is most beautiful, as Kaiser says, when you can get the purple-coloured um, Chinese or Japanese aubergines, which are now infamous because they show up in the emoji list on our uh, yes. They're now in the, they're the so now people will know yeah. that eggplants come in that particular yes. in that hue, and that, so I I love that one because I, for the longest time I had been brining. I'd simply been using salt water. That does not work as well as it turns out. Well, actually, and that's because normally I am a very rigorous traditionalist in my recipes. Uh-huh. Um, and I really try and just follow practice in China and not to bring in my own innovations. But with that recipe, I do salt the aubergines, right. the eggplants, before cooking them. Um, Otherwise, and that they is, suck up too much oil. Yeah. And actually, that dish in China is often extremely oily. Yeah. And yeah. so I've borrowed a leaf from Italian cooking and I salt them first before deep frying. And then I think you get a better effect. Oh, my much better. And the other thing is to not to over deep fry them. I mean, you say three or four minutes and that is exactly right. If you go too much longer, the, the batons lose their their integrity completely. So yeah, uh, that one. Okay, so that's one. Another one. Uh, um, gong bao chicken. Oh, that's the other one that I've been doing to great applause. Everyone loves. And, you know, you have to take a little bit of trouble with the prep but yeah. once everything is ready, it's a very easy dish to make. And I find that people, after they've made it the first time, they just go on making it all the time. Yeah. That one <laughs> doubles well, too. You can do exact proportions and double them. And, you know, the sauce, the marinade, everything, it doubles perfectly. I was very proud. Um, my daughter just graduated from college last spring, and she's living on her own up in Boston. And she texted me the other day and said, Dad, how do you make that gong bao chicken recipe? Um, and I could have taken credit for it myself but instead i took a photo of the recipe from your book and and sent it to her it's complicated i mean it's it's more complicated than most people think because you have to you know do the sauce and you have to do the marinade 
Uh, and then, you know, I think not everyone can cut chicken into quite such uniform pieces either. It's not, it's not a super easy one to do, but it's great. I do it with cashews and it turns, turns out, ah, that's perfect. But what about, what about, um, some of the street foods you might recommend? Wait, wait, let's, let's get a couple more crowd pleasers. Oh, good, though, good, good. Yeah, these yeah, yeah, yeah. two have already done. I right, want we need a full menu at least. Right. Right, right. Well, mapo tofu. Yeah. I mean, that dish is easy and it's so delicious. And also, so many of us now have vegetarian or vegan friends. Right. And if you omit the minced beef, which is the traditional one of the ingredients, and you use water instead of stock, there's so much flavor going on anyway from yeah. the chili bean paste exactly. that everyone loves it. And I find so many people who think that tofu is boring when they've had that dish, they like it. And even meat eaters who are scornful of tofu will find that a very satisfying dish. No, can I? This is probably really anathema, but I learned from making dapanji, this Xinjiang dish, a big pan of t- chicken. There's one way of making it where you make you stew it in beer. Hmm. And I've substituted, to, try, to make it um, vegetarian, um, I've substituted beer for water because I don't like vegetarian stocks that one buys in the supermarket. They always taste like, I don't know, you should be cooking uh, you know, American turkey with them or something like that. But um, mapo tofu. Yeah, so ma- I, I just use you know whatever the half cup of of beer, and it has a fuller kind of flavor. I don't know. It's probably Strange. off. Have yeah. you ever cooked with beer in Chinese? No, cooking? I haven't. <laughs> but I think anyway. I mean, one stock that I learned to make when I was in Hunan, you just boil up the fermented black beans and you get a beanie stock. And that's kind of what you're doing with mapo tofu anyway. You've got the right. black beans and the chili bean paste. So I think you get a very savory broth just with water. So if I've got stock, I'll use it. If I haven't, I'll just use water and it's still knockout delicious. Hey, so Fuchsia, um, you lead these occasional China gastronomic tours. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Where, where can we sign up? Yes, yeah, so I work with a company based in Beijing called Wild China. We've been do- oh, doing right. that for Zhang a few years. company, right. Yeah, yes, yeah. and so um, it's a small group. So one big table, about 10 people, um, 12 people, including me. And what we try to do is to show people the whole range of each of the regions, well, not the whole range, but give them a taste of the range of the different cuisines that we encounter. Um, So I'm in charge of restaurants and ordering dishes and explaining all the food. And we have everything from sort of some of the best restaurants in China, very high-end restaurants, to street snacks and markets. And the idea is that after the, the classic tour, which is Beijing, Xi'an, Chengdu, Shanghai, Hangzhou, that that gives people an insight into three of the great so-called four, four culinary right. regions. And then there's another tour I do in Yunnan, which is just one province, but it's so diverse. Right. And that's really about the local terroir and ingredients. And it's very exciting and totally different from the other one. Yeah, land of mushrooms and sheep's milk cheese. and mm, I love Yunnan food. Another episode on that one day. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess any cuisine, particularly as it becomes globally known and spreads around, you know, the innovation in that cuisine doesn't, necessi- doesn't necessarily happen in the homeland, right? So French cuisine is not restricted to France. Um, is, is it fair to say this is true of Sichuan-style cooking now, or um, is it still, you know, things are, you have to be in Sichuan for, the innovations are happening in Sichuan themselves, or are there pan-China or even kind of global things happening in the Sichuan mode of cooking that you might point to as 
fusions. Uh, fu- yeah. Well, I was trying to avoid that word, but um, but yeah, I mean, are there you know interesting things? Is the tra- the tradition moving in an interesting ways that you've noticed? Well, I think it's early days, but there were some like the Chongqing small noodles, for example, yeah. which in China they make with yellow peas, but people are now using chickpeas in London mm. because they're more easily available. Very similar mouthfeel, same sort of thing. Um, but I'm actually surprised by how little has been made of Sichuan pepper because I would have thought that, you know, potato chips, crisps, Doing a mala flavor is the most obvious. They are available in, in Asian markets in Korea. I've, and, I have I've, not seen those. I've seen mala. But why chips. aren't you know British people love eating right. potato chips and we don't have mala flavor and everyone would love them and sort of Sichuan pepper is a business <laughs> as a dip for deep fried foods is sort of universally applicable. Right. So I think um, I did see the other day in a market right outside Georgetown University, someone was selling. Um, what do they call it? Uh, Nashville Sichuan hot chicken. So this, <laughs> this deep fried, really hot Nashville chicken, which they pretended to be Sichuanizing by putting some ma on it. It wasn't, they didn't quite pull off. I liked the concept, but they didn't quite pull it off. But that might be an idea. Well, you, it, you've all seen that bastardization of, of like, of lots of G. It's this boneless, it's usually chicken, even breast or tenders, or, or I guess like I would use thigh. Um, it's breaded, deep fried, but it, the breading has a ton of 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 fen in it, and it's done in a, a pretty probably a huajiao infused oil. It's, and it's that's sometimes tasty. done like there are Dongbei restaurants yeah. in London which are doing sort of Sichuanese food, but Dongbei style, which is big platters, different ingredients. So there is a certain amount of borrowing going on. And of course, in my own home for Christmas now, every year I use the leftover turkey meat to make a liangban huoji. Um, oh. It's fantastic. Everyone loves it. It's part of our tradition now. So you do a Sichuanese sauce with sort of soy sauce and ground roasted citron pepper and chili oil, a bit of sugar, a bit of vinegar, and toss the turkey in that. Oh, that sounds good. That's what I'm going to do that. I always need things to do with leftover turkey. Because, so. you know, um, the whole poaching of, of a, a cold chicken that that's like uh, your your book basically opens with that like all these things you can do with uh with cold chicken and i was just drooling because you know variations on koshui ji right which is true to form i mean i was doing koshui all over the place <laughs> and, and you know if you've had a roast turkey the meat is drier right but just add a bit of turkey stock to the to the mm. sauce to compensate and it's wonderful okay there we go thanksgiving then uh in my house uh, wow, it was such, such a pleasure to finally meet you in person. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, God, and well, my first recommendation, obviously, is by this book. This is just, a, it's brand new. It's out. Uh, I'm, I know what I'm giving to everyone for Christmas, at least. It's a good choice. And um, should I do my recommendations? Yeah, no? let's, let's, uh, let, me, let me quickly, before you get to recommendations, I do have to pay the bills. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in Seneca Network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. I want to draw your attention to a new feature we've been doing for a few months now on our website called Signal. Uh, these are in-depth explainers on things like China's relationship with the NBA. We just ran one about all the different apologies that different companies have had to do, uh, you know, uh, NBA and Blizzard Entertainment and uh, what have you, all the airlines. Anyway, uh, also a great one on the high-speed rail network uh, about explaining WeChat, you know, the app that no one can live without, uh, about the horrific social engineering that's happening in Xinjiang and, and much more. So check out... Uh, all those at signal.subchina.com. 
recommendations. Jim, what do you have for us? Well, first off, um, I would recommend, in addition to buying Fuchsia's new book, that you uh, follow her on Instagram. And I'm not an Insta person, really, but the one person I do follow is Fuchsia, and I look her up. And there's always amazing food pictures of wild things. You do eat the weirdest stuff. I'm very privileged to have so, a rather yeah. unusually fungfu diet. And my <laughs> wife and I are, oh my God, did you see this? You see that? You know, and it'll be something. Anyway, so, so um, don't wait. Subscribe to Fuchsia's Instagram feed. Um, for other recommendations, uh, I just recently read Gail Hershatter's book, Women in China's Revolutions. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a survey of modern Chinese history that actually gives you enough of the survey you know, information, so it will catch you up on you know what happened since the 19th century through the 21st century, but really does put women into the picture, um, and and even you know often sort of women's histories talk about gender issues. They talk about women in the family and so on, and this is all you know very important. Um, but she makes the obvious but usually neglected point that uh, women's labor was sort of central to uh, the, the imperial economy, to the commercial economy, through their spinning and weaving of cotton, um, which was, was critical um, to the late imperial economy. And then also, of course, the industrialization in the early years in, in China. Um, women made up something like 70% of the workers in the early textile factories. Mm-hmm. And so there wouldn't have been industrialization in China, just as there won't, wouldn't have been export-led growth. Yeah, there's probably women's 70% of the factories in Dongguan too, right? Yeah, also, right. Yeah. Um, and then also the other really important point is the way that, you know, woman symbolized the nation in China and the sense of health of the nation depended upon, um, you know, should women's feet be bound or childbirth? Women are supposed to, you know, give birth to strong citizens. Anyway, so she, she, makes, she tells this story beautifully. She's a... Um, uh, senior professor of Chinese history, so I recommend it. But it's it's a very readable volume, which I recommend to everyone. Great. Well, when did that come out? Uh, in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it was a fairly new book. Cool. That's a great recommendation. Can I squeeze in one more? Absolutely. Okay. Um, this is something completely different. Um, it, it's not, it's also not new. It's a band called uh, Dengue Fever, like the disease, but it's an L.A. Uh, LA got anthrax already. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess there's something of a um, of a pattern. But this is an L.A.-based uh, indie band that plays uh, covers of old Cambodian psychedelic rock tunes. Because everyone knows those. Um, and, but it has a. It's fronted by a uh, marvelous singer uh, named Chom Mall. I'm, I'm mispronouncing her name. I'm sure. But it has this. Uh, really atmospheric feel with twangy guitars and lots of echoey reverb, and you feel like you're in a bar in you know Phnom Penh. Um, really haunting vocals. <laughs> I'm not um, sure I want to remember. That. Well, I suppose <laughs> right. So, so it may remind some of our younger listeners um, that before America was involved in endless wars in the Middle East, we were involved in endless wars in Southeast Asia. I don't know, um, but this is light-hearted um, music. Um, it's kind of has a humid feel. You have to be in the right mood, but um, maybe after a big mala meal and a lot of beer, that's precisely the mood you might be in. <laughs> that sounds great. Dengue fever. All right. I'll check that out. Okay. Fuchsia, what do you have for us? 
Well, I've just read one amazing novel. Is it all right if it's a bit old? Absolutely, yeah. I've just read one marvellous novel by Amy Bloom called Away, mm-hmm. um, which is set in early 20th century America. And I just found that moving and wonderful characters and so beautifully written. Amy Bloom, B-L-O-O-M? or B- Yes. Okay. And I've just started reading, and I know I'm really late to the party on this, but The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty. Oh, yeah, which is about African-American cooking. And I've just started that, but I'm already hooked. And I think that's going to be a great read. And the other thing I'd like to recommend without having even heard it yet <laughs> is the posthumous album by Leonard Cohen. Ah, right. And I'm dying to see what's in it and how it has been made. I yeah. think it was put together by his son, but he's one of my favorite, my favorite singer-songwriters. Yeah, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Leonard Cohen's absolutely brilliant. Of all of the guys who can't really sing very well, he's the best. <laughs> <laughs> but he can sure write songs. So. Oh, no, he sure can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, mine is a new book by Adam Gopnik, who is a, a writer for The New Yorker. It's called A Thousand Small Sanities. And it's a book basically about liberalism. It is about liberalism. It's sort of a defense of liberalism against, you know, the assaults of the right and, and the sort of more um, radically progressive left. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it talks about this difficult balancing act that liberals have had to perform between championing personal freedoms and championing social justice, uh, which is not always easy because the two things are often opposed, you know. Uh, and yeah, it's it, it, it's uh, extraordinarily just extraordinarily well written. If you've read him before in the New Yorker, you know he's he's a witty and very kind of. Um, clever writer uh and it, it, he he's the kind of guy you know after having read this i want to invite him over for dinner i mean i'm sure we would get along fabulously uh, just with our kind of contemptibly bland liberal uh commitments anyway um very short very enjoyable read highly recommend it fuchsia once again thank you so much for coming by i mean it was, it was so great to i'm i'm really anxious to do these poached cold chicken things now that's that's my next uh my, my next step I'm going to stop by the store on the way home and, and buy some chickens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have San Huangji here, but uh, what, what do you recommend for just like a cold chicken dish? Do, 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 do well, just special? a good chicken. I would get just a free range bird. I mean, in China, yeah. they would say a capon if you can, right, a castrated a right, right. Um, male chicken, but those are quite impossible to find. Right, so right, I would right. just get a good free range bird. But the key thing is to control the temperature so it's... Flesh is lovely and silky and succulent after cooking. God, I, I am so hungry. <laughs> I'm going to read through these credits very quickly so we can go eat. Thank you so much, Fisha. The Seneca Podcast is powered by Subchat. And thanks, Jim. <laughs> Say something. Um, thanks, guys. It's been fun. Thanks, Fisha. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. Uh, Fuchsia, what's your, your Instagram account? What's it? Um, Fuchsia Dunlop, Fuchsia one Dunlop, word. one word. Okay, follow Fuchsia Dunlop, one word. Uh, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, uh, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, New Voices and Toffer Ta, two shows about women, the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China, and our brand new family member, Strangers in China. Thanks very much for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.